Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you promised to touch your people once again. And we pray tonight that your Holy Spirit would touch our hearts. Lord, my feet are made of clay. I'm a weak vessel. And I pray that you would use me for your glory. Not for mine, but that Jesus would be uplifted tonight that Christ would be seen in his glory. We pray for the Holy Spirit to inspire, to instruct, to guide our thoughts tonight as we focus on your word. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It has been said, a moment on the lips, a lifetime on the hips. And you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) That quarter pound cheesecake. And you know you shouldn't eat it. Amen. Thanksgiving. You've eaten a little bit too much. And you forgot about dessert. And the Holy Spirit tells you you shouldn't eat it. And you eat three. (laughs) Comatose. You wake up in a fog, and this is the way that temptation works, a moment of pleasure for a lifetime of regret sometimes. And the anatomy of temptation works in that way. You think about the the nature of how this worked. In the very beginning, Adam and Eve partook of that fruit, and here we are, thousands of years of depravity, of loss, of human suffering. And this evening, we have the opportunity to look at the nature of temptation and overcoming temptation. This evening, seven keys for overcoming temptation found in the Word of God. Seven keys for helping us when we're tempted We feel everything in our being calling and crying out to us to partake, to participate, to be engaged in this activity that we know will lead down a path later on to destruction and ultimately to our demise. And yet we participate over and over again. Afterwards, in the aftermath, we say, I'm never going to do this again. Come on now. So seven keys for overcoming temptation. Let's start with number one. Give God authorization to help you. Give God what? Authorization to help you. I used to canvas door to door. That's selling books. Ellen White says that the canvassing work is the highest form of missionary service. She also says that it will continue on to the end of time. And I've knocked on so many doors, I've had calluses on my knuckles. Thousands of doors. Breast preparation for ministry, by the way. I've had dogs bite me. Been threatened to be beaten up. Eggs thrown at me like flying saucers coming all over my feet. And I said, Lord, why? And the Lord's like, this is the preparation for ministry. (laughs) And so there's an unspoken rule when you go to the door. And it goes something like this. You knock on the door, they open the door, you tell them who you are, what you're doing, and you stand there at the threshold of the door. There's this line that you dare not cross, especially in the South, if you know what's good for you. (laughs) You don't enter that home. You stand right there, no matter how cold it is, how frigid, how hot, and sometimes it was cold. Icicles forming, it felt like. Breath, you could see it, and I'd stand there, shivering, wet, miserable sometimes. And yet I stood, felt that warm draft of air come out, 
and I would dare not enter that home. I learned the saying in those moments, and it many times worked, as that door would open and the comfort of that home and that heat would just waft out, I would say, ma'am, I'm so sorry to let all that hot air out. And they would stand there for a moment and be like, uh, come on in. And I would say, thank you. Walk right in. But this invisible line is there. If you enter without permission, it's called breaking and entering. It's a violation. That threshold is sacred. And it didn't matter how many times that person would give me accolades. You're such a nice young man. I'm going to give you money. I'm going to give you food. I'm going to give you drink. I'm going to give you clothing. I would stand at the threshold of that home, and I would dare not enter until I was given those wonderful words, come on in, authorization, permission to enter the sacred sanctum of that home. And Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The implication is, Jesus does not engage in breaking and entering. Amen? Amen. And the most powerful thing that you can do in the scheme of the great controversy is to give God authorization for your life. There's rules in the great controversy. There's a certain level that God can intervene, and he will not cross into additional intervention until you give him authorization. And I pray that every one of you have given God authorization today. Amen? The most important prayer that you can pray in the morning, and by the way, don't check your cell phone before you talk with God and give him authorization. The cell phone can wait. Give God permission to intervene in your life. Authorization. Because suddenly, then God's like, okay, I've been given permission. And by the way, there's something called secondary authorization as well. Because in the Bible, in Mark chapter 2, the Bible says that when the paralytic was let down by four friends, that the Bible says, and Jesus saw their faith. In addition to the faith of the paralytic, Jesus saw the faith of his friends. And you can pray for your son, your daughter, that's out of the church. And if they were to die today, they might be lost. And you can pray and say, Lord, I want to give God authorization. Secondary authorization. Now, it's not the same as primary authorization, but secondary authorization in the form of intercessory prayer is a powerful thing that you can give God. Because there's rules in the great controversy, and you see the implications of these rules in the book of Jude when Moses was about to be resurrected by Jesus. Satan is standing there to contend against this act because he says, you don't have authorization. You don't have the right. And Jesus says, get out of the way. (laughs) And when you pray for your son, your daughter, your family member, God says, Gabriel, we've got the paperwork. (laughs) We've got clearance. Go. And when the angel Gabriel comes down and shapes and molds circumstances and events in your son's or daughter's life, your loved one, your family, your neighbor, and the devil's like, wait a minute, he didn't ask for this, she didn't ask for this, Gabriel says, step out of the way. She didn't ask for this, but a mom just did. We've got the papers, authorization. And so for the most powerful thing in dealing with temptation is the pre-decision the decision that you make beforehand, because you can't beat this thing by yourself. New Year's resolutions after New Year's resolutions, come on now. You need help. And the most powerful thing that you can give God every single day is consent. Lord, permission 
to cross the sacred threshold that you dare not cross without my permission, and I'm giving it to you right now. Amen? And Jesus says, okay. Authorization, permission, consent. I'm coming in. And when I come in, all power in heaven and on earth, the power that created the universe from nothing, the word speaks universes into existence is right there. Roger Morneau, in his book on prayer, says this, and I knew exactly where to find the power to help such people in prayer and supplication to God. Listen to this. Who waits for our request to help us so that he will have legal right in the sight of the universe to move with power into Satan's domain and rescue his captives. You have a habit in your life that's destroying you. You have an addiction. You have a temptation that seems overwhelming. Give God permission to work in your life. Authorization every single day. Give God your will. And the beauty of this prayer is you can actually say, Lord, I'm willing to be made willing. Thoughts on the amount of blessing, page 142. The will must be placed on the side of God's will. You are not able of yourself to bring your purposes and desires and inclinations into submission to the will of God. But if you are willing to be made willing, God will accomplish the work for you. You can go to God and say, Lord, I love this thing. Help me to hate it. Sometimes we're so fake with our prayers. Now, I, I don't think we should ever be sacrilegious, but the book Steps to Christ says we should talk to God as to a friend. Now, he's not your boyfriend or your buddy. He's our heavenly father. But sometimes we can add a level of inauthenticity to our prayers. We can pray like he doesn't know. Oh, God, that inhabits the glorious universe. If I went to my God, if I went to my father and said, oh, thou who clothed me, oh, thou He'd be like, son, what's wrong with you? You know what I'm talking about? You need to go to God and say, Lord, I need help. This thing's destroying me. This thing's taking over my life. Matter of fact, I don't even want to give it up. Help me to want to give it up. Give me the desire to desire. Because I can't help myself. That's the prayer. Number one, give God authorization to help you. Number two, have a plan for avoiding temptation. This is the other pre-decision. A decision before the decision. The Bible says that Daniel purposed in his heart before he got to that Michelin star buffet. Every type of delicacy that's there, he made a decision beforehand. He had a plan before. And sometimes we go into situations. We sit on that couch. We, we have that device. We go into a circumstance that we know that environment is going to lead us down a path that we've always gone before. Saturday night, you're feeling sorry for yourself. And the temptation comes. Have a plan so that you're not caught in that situation once again. Journal. Write it down. Every morning, I have a ritual. I journal. I write down the plan for the day. And if you're going to be in a situation beforehand, have a path in which you can avoid it. Don't get caught in a situation where you have that thing accessible. If you're involved in pornography... Get rid of your phone. Cancel the internet. You're like, I can't live without the internet. You can't live without your arm either. And Jesus says, cut it off. <laughs> Losing your eye is tough. She's, he says, pluck it out. Drastic measures. So that you don't have that accessibility anymore. 
You know the path, the neural pathway, the habit loop that leads to your temptation. Have a plan and a pre-decision for avoiding temptation. We need to do our part. Look at our environment. Look at the circumstances. Look at the psychology that leads to your temptation every single time. When I was canvassing, long before I married my beautiful wife, I was doing work for the Lord, and I was at this group canvas. And for whatever reason, there was this young lady that had taken an interest in me. And I knew. Bad news. And so I made it a point to have a plan to stay away. And I did everything I could. And in this moment, I was brushing my teeth in the bathroom of this house. There was a group canvas. There was a group of us there. And this lady entered the bathroom. And she said, David, no one will see us in here. In that moment, I said, legs, move. (laughs) When your plan fails, run. Don't mess around. Don't have the conversation. Walk out. Amen? Amen. And there are certain circumstances that catch you flat-footed. You've done all you could. You'd have the pre-decision. And sometimes the devil catches you by surprise. You got legs? Close your eyes if you can't leave. Quote scripture. Run when you've done your best to avoid and it still comes Run away. Number one, give God authorization to help you. Number two, have a plan for avoiding temptation. And when that plan fails, run away. Number three, be armed and ready with Scripture. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the anatomy of sin for this one. In James chapter 1, verse 12 through 15, the Bible says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say he's tempted. I'm tempted by God. For when God cannot be tempted, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Verse 14, But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. James uses an interesting analogy when it comes to temptation. He uses the analogy of conception and birth. Now follow me. We're all adults in this room. We know how this works. Conception and birth. There are stages in this development, and James points out that temptation and the anatomy of how sin works is analogous to how conception and life takes place. So here you have it. The egg comes. Just because the egg is there does not mean you're having a baby. Praise the Lord. (laughs) The egg comes. That's the temptation. Now, there's something that needs to happen in order for there to be conception. But once that conception has taken place, it's just a matter of time before the birth is taking place. Are you following me, yes or no? And so James is pointing out that the key to battling temptation is not to wait until birth. You following me? You got to deal with it at the, the moment, that microsecond, that decision, that moment that you're like, ah, 
that, that conception takes place. You can't be dealing with sin all the time at the moment of birth and being like, oh, I, I don't know how I got here. I'm having a baby. It's too late. Now, there's always forgiveness, praise the Lord. But, but the key is in that moment, that synapse, that gap, that that temptation comes. And then you're like, ah. Now, it's not a sin to be tempted. And the question is, what is that moment, that, that gap, that conception has taken place, and where is that consent? It's right here. So many of us play this game of rationalization, of thinking, oh, I'm just going to think it. Come on now. But I'm not going to do it. I'm going to fantasize. I'm going to imagine every detail of this act in my mind. But that's okay because I'm not actually doing it. That's called television. Netflix, Amazon Prime, YouTube. Oh, I'm going to watch someone kill somebody else. I'm going to watch someone lie, cheat, and steal and commit adultery and fornication. And I'm going to enjoy it and pay money for that. It's right there. And in that moment, conception. The moment... That, that temptation comes, and you're like, ah, let me just enjoy that a little bit. Conception has taken place. And that's why Jesus said, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you're guilty of adultery. Because Jesus says you can't play games with God. It's right here. It's right in that moment. That is the level that God wants to give us victory over temptation. Not at birth, not when we're dealing with all the ravages and we've thought about it a million times and we find that we've actually done it. It's right there in the thoughts. And so what's the key? What's the solution? When that temptation comes, don't just sit there. Don't engage in that activity. you got to be armed with Scripture. Because that thought that's entering your mind shouldn't be there. Now, sometimes it comes from the outside. Sometimes you get things in your mind that you don't know where you got it from. Maybe the devil planted it there. Maybe it's something from your past. But when that temptation comes, it is entering a secure area. Think TSA, right? TSA screening, there should be a screening for what enters here and is allowed here. Amen? And so think TSA screening. It, it entered there, but you can't let it stay there. And so how do you get it out? Be armed with Scripture. Amen? When that young lady was pursuing me, a passage of James. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive a crown of life. Temptation comes. Well, you just squashed that opportunity. Look, you can't do it any better than Jesus did. Every temptation, it is written. It is written. Have a note card. Say it out loud. Have the habit. When the temptation comes, don't just sit there because that, that thing's coming. The moment of conception is the moment that you've just gone down the process and birth is coming, according to James. The temptation comes. Meet it with Scripture. You can't do it any better than Jesus because when sin is there, when the Word comes in, sin goes out. That's how it works. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. There's power in the word of God. Let's use it. Amen? Amen. By God's grace. Get the note cards. Write it out. Claim your promise. Say it out loud. There's power in the word of God. When the temptation comes, meet it with scripture. You can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in it. Can you imagine? I got a little bald spot on my head that's kind of <laughs> growing here. I mean, imagine a bird flies down. He's like, man, that looks like a nice spot for a nest. 
walking outside. I mean, believe you me, I'd look like a madman running around outside. Because I'd be like, ah! Right? You're not going to be like, please, just, just land. Matter of fact, I'll stay here for a few months while I gather all the twigs and you just build me a nice little hat. And yet that's how we roll with temptation. Temptation comes. Just land right there, please. We have a little dissertation going on in our head of how we're going to carry out this sin in our minds. Imagination, contemplation, transformation, all taking place. Huge nest, like a bald eagle, right there. (laughs) And yet James says, when it comes, you swat it with Scripture. Amen? Amen? Number one, give God authorization. Number two, be armed and ready with Scripture. Number three, oh, number two, I'm just making sure you're awake. All right, here we go. (laughs) Give God authorization. Number two, have a plan for avoiding temptation. Number three, be armed and ready with Scripture. And number four, starve the flesh and feed the Spirit. Romans chapter 13, verse 14 says, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Let me talk about appetite. Oh, watch out. Do you know that it's said that if you can conquer appetite, you can conquer anything? First temptation started with fruit, by the way. And I've noticed something about appetite. That there's a correlation between when we indulge in appetite. Let's talk about comfort food. Comfort food is not broccoli. You're not like, oh, I'm feeling sad. Let me eat some Brussels sprouts. (laughs) There's there's a nature of comfort food. It's junk food. Come on. It's ice cream, pizza on a Saturday night. And you're like, oh, I deserve this. And so you indulge. And so with that comfort food, food, you're not like, oh, let me watch 3ABN. <laughs> you watch junk. That chick flick. That movie. So there, there's, there's a correlation between that. You're not eating broccoli and watching 3ABN, it's feeding something else. What's it feeding? Your spiritual nature? No way. It's feeding your carnal nature. And when that happens, there's a lowering of the guard. There's an eroding of your spiritual defenses. And then when you wake up the next morning and you try to open your Bible and you're like... There's a reason for that. Because there is no body-soul dichotomy, contrary to Plato, Aristotle, and the whole of Christian theology that says, oh, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. It matters what you do with your soul. Well, guess what? Everything is the soul. You are a soul. So when you put that pizza in you, you put it in your soul. And it skewed your ability to understand spiritual things. And so we need to cooperate with heaven. Amen? Amen. You can't be like, just, Lord, help me. I surrender my life to you. And then proceed down a path of not cooperating with heaven. And the Lord can give us victory over appetite. Amen? Amen. Now let me talk about fasting. Uh Uh-oh. Do you recognize that Jesus said there's some certain things that can't come out but by prayer and fasting? 
Do you also recognize that when Jesus said in regards to prayer, he said, when you pray. He didn't say, if you pray. Now, after that, he also said, when you fast. He didn't say, if you fast. It's in that same chapter. Read it for yourselves. There's a, there's a correlation between prayer and fasting. And notice that one has to do with the appetite. Now, what I'm going to describe to you is descriptive, not prescriptive, meaning that it's something that I do. Now, you need to figure out something that works for you, and please consult your doctor. Fine print. Now, I had malaria a number of years ago, and I really suffered from it and lost a lot of brain cells. I didn't need to go into all that story. Broke my constitution. And about five years ago, when I had my son Hudson, the Lord said, hey, I want you to fast once a week for 24 hours. And so I said, all right, Lord. So I eat breakfast, and I fast to the next breakfast, just water. And that first 24 hours, all I could think about was rice. (laughs) I'm Asian. And a point into the fast, broccoli sounded really good. (laughs) Know what I'm talking about? I mean, I'm like, oh, I could just eat some broccoli right now. (laughs) Raw. And and the thing was transformative. You, You know, there's something about fasting. Because in that moment, I recognize I'm but dust. I miss three meals and I feel like I'm about to keel over. Now, I'm dramatic. I'm like, what is wrong with me? Three meals. I'm nobody. And there's a correlation between that feeling and the sense that without God, I'm nobody. Amen? Amen? And that I need Him. Just like I crave food, I crave the bread of life. And there's that, that, that correlation that takes place, and it has been transformative for me. Every Monday, I fast. And this is not to give glory to me, and I don't do it to be saved. Amen? Amen. I'm not like I do this because I want points with God. I do it because, believe it or not, I love fasting now. Because of the benefits. And the Bible says, therefore, because of the mercies of God. Now, has God been merciful to you? Has he given you chance after chance, opportunity after opportunity? I would have given up on me. But God doesn't, praise God. And Paul says, therefore, because of the mercies of God, he's just gone through justification, sanctification, how all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he says, therefore, because of that, give your body to him, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, and this is reasonable. It's not unreasonable. It's not irrational. It's not legalism. It's reasonable. Because of what God has done for you, you're like, Lord, I'm giving you this. Not an emaciated, dying sacrifice, a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable to God. And this is reasonable. It's your response to the love of God. Now, there's a fast that we can all do. Ellen White, now and onward to the close of time, God's people should be more awake, not trusting in their own wisdom, but the wisdom of their leader. They should set aside days for fasting and prayer. Entire abstinence from food may not be required, but they should eat sparingly of the most simple foods. So all of us can do that, amen, by God's grace. A simple food diet, temperance, abstinence from things that are harmful, moderation in the things that are good. Starve the flesh and feed the spirit. Number five, be on guard in your downtime. Vacations, Saturday night, time, when you're off the clock and you're like, whew, let me just 
kick back a little bit. Let me let my hair down. Now, it's good to relax. We need recovery. But look, it was when David was relaxing that he saw Bathsheba. If that brother had been out at war where he should have been, he probably wouldn't have made that mistake. And so it's in those idle moments, the downtime. Do you know the most miserable time in America according to statistics? You're like, oh, it must be Wednesday. It's Sunday morning. Because you have this block of time in which you don't have purpose. It's open. Idle time. Just this blah. And contrary to popular opinion, that that time of idleness, I mean, you could do that maybe for about an hour, but beyond that, you need some sort of goal and structure and purpose because what happens in our idle moments is that the brain naturally has the tendency to go into chaos, if you haven't noticed. I mean, what do you do? If I don't keep my mind active and I have these large blocks of time, it's like, oh, What am I going to do with my life? What if my car doesn't last? Oh, have I checked my my retirement fund? Oh, you know, it's like all these crazy things are popping in my head all at once. And that's why it's good to give our brains structure, like memorizing scripture, because it takes all of that chaos and it gives it a form and a function. And so if you have these large blocks of time that you're just finding that just goes into chaos and you descend into oblivion, listen to 3ABN radio. That's a plug, by the way. Amen? They didn't pay me for that. But give it structure. Listen to something. Guard your idle moments and watch the moments after a high because this is the psychology of how it works. After every high, there's going to be a low. There's a reason why Elijah, after Mount Carmel, wanted to kill himself. And so, after a high, recognize that there may be a low. And structure that time. Don't let it descend. And most of all, live in the audience of God even when you're on vacation. Don't take vacation from God. It never ends well. Number six. I was like, I thought I had a typographical error here. (laughs) Number six. Make thinking about Jesus your favorite place to go. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we have places that we love to go in our minds that we should never be. Areas that we go and dream and imagine and think about. In those idle moments, you're like, oh, let me just go to my favorite place. And you know where that is, right? That favorite thought. That indulgence that you know if we were to shine on this screen right now, you would blush with embarrassment. That area that you just like, the default setting, that you're like, oh, let me go to my default setting. I got a few moments. Let me just just go here. That go here place should be Jesus. Because imagination leads to transformation. The most powerful thing you can do, and God has given you an imagination, it should be sanctified. But the mental pictures that we have in our brains, the visualization that we have in our minds, the the tape, the film, the video that we like to play over and over and over again because we get pleasure out of it needs to be thrown out and replaced with another tape. Amen? Amen. 
And that tape is thinking about Jesus. Believe it or not, the vision that you have in your brain is changing you. Arnold Schwarzenegger said this. It's the same process I used in bodybuilding. What you do is create a vision of who you want to be and live that picture as if it were already true. And so he talks about how when he was in the military, he would have a mental picture. And matter of fact, he would have posters plastered all over his barrack of these big, muscular men, Mr. Universe. And he lived that dream. And guess what? He became Mr. Universe. By beholding, you become changed. When I was in college, I had to take a class that terrified me. It's called homiletics. I had to preach a 10-minute sermon before my peers and the college president. And afterwards, they would give me an evaluation. And so in preparation for this sermon, I listened to this tape, and it was a tape. Don't let this baby face fool you. (laughs) It was a tape of Charles Bradford, the late North American Division President, erudite, eloquent, great preacher. And I listened to that tape day and night. Morning after morning. Now, there's nothing like black preaching. Amen? (laughs) I wish I had the elocution to be able to preach like that. And as I was back there listening to Whitney Phipps preach, and I was like, Lord, how do I follow that? (laughs) Mm. I said, I might as well. Man, Elder Whitney, would you like another hour? Oh, the eloquence and the, the crafting of words just melts my heart every time. So I was listening to this man, Charles Bradford, and I went up to preach. To be honest, I thought it went quite well. And as I got down from the podium, one of my African-American friends said, David, you preached like a brother. And I said, what do you mean, a brother in Christ? (laughs) And so I sat down with my instructor, and he played on the VHS my sermon. And as I sat there, I said, it's the most surreal thing, because I watched an Asian man (laughs) preach like a black man. It just didn't match very well. (laughs) By beholding, we become changed. Amen? (laughs) And imagination does lead to transformation. (laughs) And you know this quote, Desire of Ages, page 83. It would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point. And notice what she says. Let the imagination. This is right brain activity. This is not exegesis. This is not analysis. This is synthesis. Let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. As we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, our confidence will be in him will be more constant. Our love will be quickened, and we shall be more deeply imbued with his spirit. Amen. Use your imagination. Now, if you're wondering what to do in your morning devotions, look at the Gospels. Look at the last moments of the life of Jesus. And as you read it, For your devotional exercise now, there's a place for exegesis, there's a place for analysis, there's a place for all the left brain thinking, but look, 
The difference between left brain thinking and right brain thinking is that right brain thinking hits the heart. Come on now. I mean, if I think about my wife in a left brain way, five foot four, from North Dakota, you know, all these types of analytics, I mean, like, that's facts. But if I think about her as a person, the character, the life, that's the relationship. And so as you think about Jesus in his final moments on the cross, and you imagine that based on the text, in your mind's eye, she says, use your imagination. Imagine that you're there. Imagine as he looks at his mother and John and says, Mom, John's going to take care of you. John, take care of my mom. Does that hit you? Imagine that and journal and write it down and say, Thank you, Lord, for being who you are. And you can't help but love a God like that. And as you leave the inner sanctum of your morning devotions, and as you have a moment waiting in line at Walmart, don't go to your phone. Don't go to that favorite place that you went to in your past life of sin. Play the tape that you played that morning. Amen? In your mind, capture. And that's how we become like Jesus, from glory to glory, from character to character, from faith to faith, and from day to day. We need to replace the thing that we've been playing for years. And look, it takes time. And don't be discouraged. It's going to take effort. Those neural pathways are real. And you need to replace it with something else. Why not replace it with Jesus? Amen. Amen. Number seven. When you fall, get back up. Amen. Amen. Now the devil will come to you and say, look, what a loser. You think you're a Christian. Why don't you stay down? But the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16, for a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. Now this is not limiting it to seven times, but it's indicating the difference between a righteous man and a wicked man is a righteous man keeps getting back up. The wicked man falls once and stays down. And here's the thing. When my son was learning how to walk, and he took that first step and fall and fell, I didn't spank him. I didn't look at him and say, what's wrong with you? I mean, you were just born. You know? I mean, like... You should be running a marathon by now. And yet we think God is worse than us. You're just born again, you're figuring this thing out, and we think God's up there. He's not like that. That's a lie. That's the devil, not God. Steps of Christ, page 64. We shall often have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus because of our shortcomings and mistakes. Praise God for this part. But we are not to be discouraged. Even if we are overcome by the enemy, we are not cast off, not forsaken, and rejected of God. Look, I praise God for 1 John 1, 9. Amen? 1 John 1, 9. And look, I can't tell you how many times I've turned to that verse and I say, praise God, it's still there. Amen? 
if we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And look, if you ask for a Lamborghini, it's not always yes and it's most likely no. But you ask for forgiveness of sins, it's always yes. A categorical yes. That's a yes prayer. And it doesn't matter how you feel, how many times you've messed up, how many times you've been beaten up, how low you've come. You pray that prayer in 1 John 1, 9. It's always yes. And it's always immediate. You're not in the doghouse. You don't have to pay penance. You don't have to grovel and to beg God for forgiveness and ask him 50 million times just in case he forgot. You ask, and it's yes. That's the God we serve. We serve a God that says, look, 1 John 1, 9, on one side, and Jude 24 on the other side. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That is the God of the universe that can give us victory over temptation. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you don't give, us up, give up on us. And you, we thank you for 1 John 1, 9. That when we fall, it's always a yes prayer for forgiveness. But on the other hand, you give us victory to keep us from falling. And Lord, we thank you that we haven't arrived. We thank you that we're striving. We thank you that we're a work in progress. And Lord, we're willing to be made willing by your grace. Give us the desire to desire. May you work in us both to will and to do of your good pleasure. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.